This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, I am here with Jose Tejada, uh, a.k.a. Uh, how do you pronounce it properly? Is it Yotego, well, Jotego, Jotego? It, it, it is, it is Ho, Jotego. Okay. I've been it's s- actually mm-hmm. like my name. It's Jose Tejada Gomez, you know, the first two letters of each part of my name. So. Oh, that makes sense. I should have picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to get everybody's name right, and I'm notorious for getting them wrong. And I try really hard to get everybody's name right, though, but I'm bad at pronouncing things. So. <laughs> Okay, well, Hotego, um, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, you are the person who has created some pretty amazing FPGA cores for all of the different platforms out there, such as Mr., Mist, and a few others that I wasn't even aware of until I started following you on Patreon, actually. Um, so it's, uh, first of all, just thank you for your contributions. This is all really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This, this is quite exciting to me, actually, to be here in your podcast. It's it's quite an honor. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I've I've wanted to uh, to talk to you for a while now, actually, and I just uh, it was my life just got crazy busy, but I'm trying to make time to talk to all the people I'm a big fan of nowadays and and really get uh, you know get the word out there. So, um, I guess we're also celebrating kind of a giant milestone because I believe just last night you had a public release of the CPS 1.5 core with Q Sound built into it, right? Yes, it it's been hard. It's been hard to get up to here, and I was quite you know uh, relaxed after I, you know, I pulled the the trigger yesterday and I got the files up in the server. Yeah, I um I haven't had time yes. to do a lot of testing with it, but I did play Punisher, uh, and it was really oh. cool. <laughs> it was very cool. <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, it and the music is is so good. I wasn't expecting. Like like the guys, they, they really got good composers for this game. So it's yeah, uh, yeah. I found that I was just doing a, a video about the CPS two kit, and I was trying to find some music to open the video with, just like I always do. And I was really impressed at how how Capcom spent a lot of time getting good music in some of those arcade games, which is surprising because a lot of time in the arcade environment, you know, it's loud, it's noisy, people are yelling, you almost can't hear the music. So it was really cool to see how much uh, effort they put into getting good music in them. Indeed, yeah. So um, how did you even get started doing this stuff? Do you do uh, FPGA things for a living? Is this just a hobby for you? No, no, like I'm, well, I'm an electronics engineer. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I work for analog devices as my, as my you know, uh, regular uh, work. I didn't realize that. Job. That's cool. I use a lot of their chips. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's... Thank you. <laughs> and the, but what I do there, I'm, I'm actually an, an analog design engineer. So I I do like like filters, like well, not really filters, like amplifiers, voltage regulators, uh, 
yeah, pretty much any analog stuff that we that has to go in, into one chip. And modern chips have, all, they all have a, a mixture. They all have a digital section and an analog section. Mm-hmm. So, so you, so you always see the digital section like, you know, like the other guys, like the guys in the other room. Um, you know, we we talk together, we do things together, but they normally don't do any digital design in the office. And so I wanted to experiment with that too, and and that it's kind of what got me involved here. Like I I found the schematics for Ghosts and Goblins, and I thought, oh my god. I mean, all the information is here. Like, you can recreate this without tampering with it, without imagining things. Um, and that got me started. So that was the first core that you did? As, yes, that was the first core. It wasn't the first kind of job. I actually started w- with a sound chip from Yamaha mm-hmm. because I saw the, the Mist. The Mist was, you know, it's an earlier FPGA platform. Mm-hmm. And I got one, and I thought that all the cores were already done. And when I got it, I found that <laughs> there weren't many cores out there. So I, I thought I could contribute by making uh, a Yamaha sound chip core so other people could use it for for their own cores. And I made it, but I no, no one was actually using it. Uh, like, no one was, was writing cores. And then, but because I had done that, I got contacted to, to do the sound for the Genesis core. Mm-hmm. And... And once I, I did that one, that, that one was used in, you know, in Mister, Mist, in, um, and once I did that one, that is kind of the same chip as the one used in Ghosts and Goblins. So then I thought, okay, I'm going just, I'm going to add the, the video part to this, so then we have the full core. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I made that, and Smoke Monster made a video about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe this is more popular than, than I thought. Maybe it's worth spending time doing this. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I, that's the first introduction to you was when you had contributed to the Genesis Core. That's the first time I had heard your name. Uh, and I've kind of been following you ever since um, and all the work that you've been contributing. So that's that's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. So the the MD Fourier team has really done a deep analysis on that core as well, and it's incredibly accurate to the original. And in fact, I think in Mister at the moment you could switch between the different audio chips of the Genesis One and then the rest of the models, uh, and it's really accurate and it's a very cool experience. Yes, sounds sounds quite good. Yeah. So then you did uh, Ghosts and Goblins. You did that one, um, and then you moved on to a couple of other of the older boards as well. Um, yeah. uh, I'm trying to remember the the fighting game that you did. Um, I don't know why it's slipping me. Maybe it's maybe my coffee hasn't kicked in yet. But... Fighting game. The the beat 'em up game. Well, do- Double Dragon? Could this be Double Dragon? Could be. There was a few or, that or... I saw you work on, though. Uh, one of them, I think I have the board that I won when you did the, the raffle giveaway. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that was such a coincidence. I, I wasn't expecting, you know, the winner to be someone I knew. Yeah, it's a lot of people thought it was fixed, and I was like, no, I just, I just, I, I was even retweeting. Uh, I wasn't even retweeting to enter. I was retweeting just to give you more, um, 
uh, just more exposure. But it's funny that one. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not funny, but that box ended up getting destroyed in shipping. It was uh, it was completely submerged in water at one point. Um, so the boards oh. warped. So I'm actually glad that I got it and not somebody else because I have friends here that can help me restore that and fix it. So it won't go to waste. Uh, um, actually, my friend Jose, who lives in New York here, uh, I've already <laughs> asked and asked some help. He had me try a few things, and we're going to bring it back to life just because I don't like to see things go to waste like that. So yeah, that's cool. But yeah, what was the name of that yes. game again? I, I don't know why. Uh, that yeah, uh, that one is uh, not Trojan. Is uh... Tiger Road. Tiger Road. There we go. I have no idea why Tiger I forgot Road. that one, but yeah. oh, it's quite. It has beautiful scenery. Yeah, like uh, Aquas has been playing uh, a lot lately to that game. Like he's been beating it, like trying to you know to push the the time limit to finish earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And... So um, where did you go from there then? You did Genesis Core, Ghosts and Goblins, Tiger Road, uh, and then it was a very quick ramp up to the other boards. Yes, uh, I started doing boards for which I had schematics and there were no custom chips because then, you know, everything is out there so you can understand everything. And at some point, you know, Capcom started introducing more custom chips, but if you come from the older boards, you, you can more or less know what to expect inside that custom chip. So then, you know, okay, they have embedded here this and that, you know, this is just an integrated version of the other stuff. So, so I kept, you know, going up the, the Bionic Commando, 1943, 1942. I did, uh, I did Popeye, but Popeye is, is a very, very awkward hardware. It's in a, in a very strange way. It was quite a bit of a headache, and at that point, I didn't have my my workflow as as developed as I have it now. So, so it was a bit painful, and and eventually someone else made made the core for Mister, and so I stopped maintaining that one. That is the only one that I have stopped maintaining. The other ones I have have kept maintaining them. I started with Konami cores too, mm-hmm. and yeah, but I was only like releasing one core every two months Mm -hmm. but at some point i thought that i could do more i was afraid that if i did more like patrons would actually not like that because i was charging per core release so i was only charging once every two months so i thought maybe if i charge every month now you know they are not going to be happy about that you know generally speaking when it comes to patreon um you know there's there's always the oddball but the majority of people and i mean this in a very nice way but the majority of people don't care at all they're they support you because they want to support you if you do a million cores or if you do one if you charge monthly or if you charge per release most people just don't care they pay what they can which is very often a dollar which is awesome that's fine too but they they just kind of sit back and say all right i can't wait to see what you do next do your thing and you know that's why if you notice you have uh, your average patreon account has a lot fewer comments than they do subscribers because most people like for me personally i turned off notifications on almost everybody just because my inbox was always getting filled (laughs) so i don't i usually don't even see things until they hit public and i don't even care i'm just glad i get to support all the people that i'm big fans of so (laughs) no i think Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, and just for everybody, you know, I always give this disclaimer. We're doing this over Skype. There's a, a big delay between, uh, you know, Spain and uh, New York City. And, uh, you know, we're <laughs> so there's going to be uh, stepping on each other at some points. My apologies. But um, I was going to ask, you said, you said something before that kind of clicked in my brain because you're a musician as well, right? Well, uh, yes. I mean, 
<laughs> not professionally. But you do play. So you yes. said when you were getting yes. used to the older chips in Capcom and you started to, to take a look at the newer ones, you kind of knew what to expect. And that kind of reminded me of um, when I was a kid. I, I, I always loved all kinds of music, but heavy metal was my favorite because uh, guitar players, I mean, it's the most fun uh, for that. And actually what you play are the, the, my two favorite styles. I can't play as well as you, though. But, uh, and I remember uh, a new Megadeth album came out and I started playing along and I was... I already kind of knew what was coming next, even though it was the first time I had ever heard that song, because uh, Dave Mustaine is the reason I play guitar. So just I'm playing, I'm, I'm listening to the riffs, and I just immediately knew where he was going to go. <laughs> is it, does it feel the same way when you're uh, reverse engineering these chips where you kind of know like, okay, Capcom usually goes to the left here, so I'm expecting this or you know something like that? It, it does. It does a bit. Yeah, so, so there is a, a big advantage if... Inexperience. So the more exposed you are, the the easier it's going to get. Except for Nintendo, that Popeye board is, is completely different. <laughs> and yeah, there are exceptions. Like the the bubble bubble uh, video system is also very awkward, very very awkward. Um, and we have it accurate because we have the schematics. But if you look at the schematics. Like I, I normally study the, the main source code too, mm -hmm. to, because there is a lot of information there. So I, I try to gather all the information I can. And if you look at the main source code and the schematics, uh, I mean, they, they are doing the right thing. I'm not saying they are not. No, it's just that you wouldn't imagine uh, one from the other. The, because the, that implementation, though that circuit is so weird. I don't know who thought, you know, who they had there. But if if I had done it starting from zero, it would be compatible, but it wouldn't be the same circuit because it's, yeah, it's it's just very very strange. That's interesting. I see a lot of now. I'm you know I am not an engineer at all. I am I know just enough to be dangerous, but I do see a lot of Sega stuff where even as an amateur, I look at it and go. Why, why would they do it that way? Like, you could only imagine a bunch of engineers sitting around a table going, all right, well, we'd like to do it this way, but we have stock of this chip that we need to use, so let's make this chip work instead. And, you know, I, I have been on a, a hardware design team before, and I, do, I have seen stuff like that in the past, but I still, there's a lot of designs where I'm just looking at the Sega boards going, why would anybody route it that way? It doesn't, you know, it makes no yeah. sense. So. Um, yes, it happens. So, um, so from there, um, when did you actually start working on the CPS-1 core? I started, I think it was in January or February this year. Like, I knew there was another another developer who had expressed interest in it. And and he actually asked me, uh, you know, not to work on it. And, and I said, okay, um, yeah, I'm busy now. So, but people are asking me about this. So, you know, so go ahead, but, you know, I'll check back on you in, in a couple of months, maybe. So, so then when, when I came back to him, he, he still hadn't advanced that much, but, but he still had interest. So I asked him if he wanted to do it together, but, but yeah, sometimes open source collaboration is not as fun because it, it's more like, like, you know, like a job or, the thing is that he he wasn't very enthusiastic about about doing it together, so I, so I said, well, it, it's okay, I'll I'll do it then. Um, so I think I, I started in February, um, and it went the it went pretty quickly, I suppose. Yeah, I think I had a a beta in 
in three weeks or something since since I started. Yes. Yeah, that's why I asked because it seemed so quick. I was wondering if you had been working on that before then, or if it really did go that quick, where you just announced I'm starting today, and then a few weeks later you had the payout. <laughs> no, <now." laughs> no, no. I actually didn't know much about the system. I so I just started that. That, that was schematics, but big, two big custom chips that you know. One of them was uh, published uh, like a week ago or so. But at the time, there was no information about the, you know, what they had inside and then information in main. But I had all the background from Capcom, from the stuff they had made before. Yeah. Um, so when you I, go I, into something like that, you know, especially something with a lot of custom chips on it, you have the main board layout. You have the, uh, you said you did have the schematics for it as well, right? And yes. the basic components like resistors, capacitors, those I'm sure there's already you could, in the tools, there's already just drag and drop for those. But how do you begin uh, the reverse engineering of the custom chips? I mean, do you just start by translating the schematics or do you have to start probing and testing? Yes. What what people care about or or, or what I think people care about is, is accuracy of the system, but only to the point that you can actually tell. Mm -hmm. Like if you measure the, the video output from the, you know, from the board and the arcade and, and the FPGA and they are the same, then it's not so important how, how that is done. Okay, so, so you have some flexibility there. Like for instance, the original systems usually have like a, a six megahertz clock and they, or a 12 megahertz clock and then they derive signals from there. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would have a higher speed clock because I need higher speed clocks for for uh, SDRAM access, for instance. Mm -hmm. so, so the systems are always going to have some differences. So what I try to do with with the board, with the custom chips, is to pick up on the things that are going to make a difference. Like, for instance, it is important that if the custom chip is locking the CPU from accessing memory that I get that right, because that is going to affect timing. And that is going to affect how the user feels the game. Like the DMA, the direct memory access in CPS is, is such an example. Like in, in emulation, you don't have that. You don't have the DMA emulated. So it's like the system goes way faster because it has the memory at its full disposal all the time. Or also wait cycles often Often when the CPU access memory in these systems, there are some flip-flops, external flip-flops that will uh, pause the CPU for one or two clock cycles because memories were slower than the CPU. So, so though that kind of detail makes a difference. Um, and, and you will see that in the screen because you will see things may go you know, slower sometimes and things may happen at a different pace. So that is important, but often it is not important like the order in which the sprite engine was parsing the ROM file, that you are not really going to see the difference. That So for those things, sometimes I do it exactly as the original, and sometimes I just do it in, a, in an easier way. Often I do that to interface with the SDRAM in, in a better way. But, you know, I, I kind of choose, you know, where, but when it doesn't matter and when it does matter, when it does affect accuracy, I, I try to measure it and get it right. Interesting. 
You know, I always kind of thought that there's different levels of, from a, a player's point of view, there's different levels of emulation. So, of course, there's just the people that want either the blast of nostalgia, so they remember what it was like to play it, or people who have never played it before that just want to spend a few moments. And from that level, it doesn't really matter how accurate it is. You could play it on your phone and, and, ha and fine. Um, but your average player doesn't want to have anything that takes away from the experience. So uh, lots of variable lag. You know, you press the button now, it's two frames. You press the button a second from now, it's 10 frames of lag. Like the, you, can't, you can't get your moves right, especially in fighting games. You can't play on your jumps and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's good enough for the casual user. But then you get into the people that really love these games. And then there's more levels there. Then there's, you know, the accuracy of things uh, and, you know, the latency and the look of it becomes a lot more important and then of course yes. when you have the fighting game tournaments that's when it you know it needs to absolutely mimic the original there's some players out there that are world-class that know every glitch of every game they can you know <laughs> they know exactly how it's going to react and if it doesn't if it doesn't do it that exact way it can't be used in the tournaments then so um in my experience with your cores it's really close to to the end i've i'm not good enough of a player to have ever um be able to really get into that last level of of, of fine detail but i'm friends with people that are and they all say that the, the cps1 core is excellent they've all been using it and uh, and really enjoy it so that's a uh, that's pretty impressive thank you thank you we, there are still a, a couple of things that that i i need to get more accurate like the dma might be off by a few microseconds and I, I need to get down to to that mm -hmm. but yeah but it should be, it should be very very close uh, as it is now yeah it's you know i know uh, every every engineer is different hardware software whatever but i know a lot of people that don't want to ever release anything until it's their version of perfect which is sometimes very unrealistic and i know a lot of people that definitely release things too early and I, I think that you found uh, a sweet spot in that, especially with the Patreon stuff, because you'll release a buggy beta only to Patreon subscribers because that's that's what a lot of them sign up for. Like, we want to be in the loop. We want to try it. But your public releases are all good enough so that any casual user will have a pretty perfect experience. And then I really like how I've seen uh, I've seen you go back and update older cores um, and, yes. and really get you know raise the accuracy. So I, I really love the, your stance on that. Like, all right, once it's good enough to enjoy, the public can have it. But even if it's not perfect, I'll go back and, and work on it when I have time, or when I get more knowledge of the newer chips, I can go back to the older ones. I thought that was really cool. I, I hope uh, a lot of people take that same stance on on all projects, hardware, software, whatever. So yes, and, and I think I think patrons in in general have uh, shared that that I think that they like. They, they want to see the new stuff, but they also like to see that the old stuff is not abandoned. That right. that if I find something I can improve, I will go back and improve it. And um, and then the, the betas, I, I try, I normally try the beta to be very good. Like I I released the bubble bubble without sound because I was asked for like 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 that was one of the patrons had asked for for that core and. And he and he said that you know he he just he just wanted to to check it out and I said well okay yeah let's do it without sound and and sometimes I release I release things because I need I need to get them off my system you know mm -hmm. like like in the CPS one point five the first bit I didn't have sound and but I needed to get it out because just to get up to that point was was quite hard because 
even if it doesn't have sound, it has all the elements needed for the sound except the DSP chip. And to get all that logic working together was a bit exhausting. So, so to just just publishing it kind of relaxes me. So um, I actually wanted to ask you about that. I guess I have two questions about that. Not counting audio, what's the difference in the hardware between CPS-1 and 1.5? And then separately, I, I wanted to ask about the audio for that. Yes. Um, not counting audio, I think they are they are the same. Yes, I think some... Bum, bum, bum. No, no, I think I think they're the same. It's just the audio subsystem. Um, yeah, um, some input ports are mapped in a different way, mm-hmm. but in CPS one, depending on the game, so, sometimes you get that too. That you will get extra input ports from the from one of you know the the the, the C board that they call the a small board. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now for the sound, of course, that's there's been a debate for years of what Q sound actually is. And I remember following a thread that says it's, you know, it's the amp, it's a filter, it's a, you know, I'm really curious to hear, um, you know, from you who's actually reverse engineered it, you know, what is Q sound? You know, would you be able to explain that? Yes. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because you can implement the whole thing without, without having gone through through it because Q sound is it, it, it's a set of software filters that run on a on a DSP and DSPs are like very fast CPUs that are designed just to work with data with real time data and so at the time there were other chips like the chip in the new Geo that processed PCM data or AD PCM samples. So these chips would, you know, go to the memory, grab the sample, uh, decompress it, and play it. So this Q sound does the same thing. It can do that, and it does it for 16 channels, which, which is a lot. But it also applies filters, and these filters are supposed to mimic some spatial effects. Um, and there's apparently, you know, if you are in the right setting without signal bouncing of walls or things like that. With Q sound, they can make they can make you hear only certain things if your head is here, but if your head is over there, you will not hear it. And and they were they were playing these tricks for fun in some games where they you know they hide sounds and things like that. But in general, what they try to do is just to to make it easier to locate things in in the space and in some games like in Warriors of Fate. You can see from the very beginning the, that the horse is coming from the left and it's moving around. Um, it's, so it's basically filters. Um, there is most of them are digital. There is an analog board with some more filters. I haven't implemented those ones too, but I think that those ones are not important for the spatial location. But I may be completely wrong, and I think that because. I see that they only operate on one channel. They only operate on either the left or the right, not on both of them at the same time. So I would suppose that for a spatial location, you you need to mix the two signals. Um, a, a curious thing about the DSP there is that it doesn't rely on any interrupt to to know the sample rate. Like normally with sound, you need a tick, you know, you need, because you need to move at at this speed. Mm-hmm. 
But that DSP is just the code is written in a way that it you know it, it goes in loops, right? It is one uh, forever loop there, getting the samples and getting the data out. And the duration of the loop is exactly the sample rate, and it is almost exactly forty-eight kilohertz. Hmm. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Um, there was so much conflicting data on what that was, but that, that actually makes total sense now to me. So that's pretty cool. Um, so what is then uh, the difference between that and the Q sound that's built into the CPS2? Is it the same sound chips with just the updated uh, other processors? Yes, we, no, we think it is exactly the same. Okay. I think it is it is the same subsystem. So, so getting... Yeah, like like maybe people think, you know, why why did you do CPS one point five? We you can skip that one because the big games are in CPS two. Mm-hmm. But I think is that it is easier, you know, if to do this system, get the sound working there, and now you do the next step. So at least, you know, you get rewards while you are advancing rather than trying to go for something very big that is going to take you like one year to get working on. Yeah, I, so I completely the, and totally agree, both from a development point of view, but also as as a fan and as a gamer. Um, the CPS 1.5 boards were very often some of the most expensive, the hardest to find. Yes. The emulation was, was good on them so far, the software emulation, but it wasn't perfect. Um, you know, a lot of the, the big fans could definitely tell the difference. So I think this is one of those rare moments that on both sides, the development side yes. and, the, you know, the fans that love the games pro- probably agree that it was a very good move to, to take the step. Because, um, you know, it's with arcade, with arcade boards, it's very easy to skip something that may not be as important as another. And it's really good that you know, from all perspectives that we get this. So I'm glad you didn't skip it. I'm glad you went and, and checked it out as well. And I didn't know these games uh, that much, actually. Um, and then when I started playing them, I thought, I mean, these are really good games. Um, like the the Punisher, it, it, it's not just because of, of the Punisher character, it's just that the game is is it's a lot of fun to play. It is very well done, and you, it really feels like you are, you know, you are smashing all these guys. Like, yeah, yeah. I I played that uh, last night, and I've played that emulated before. But uh, my friend Beast and I were talking about Cadillacs and dinosaurs as well, and I said I wasn't going to play that until the uh, the Mister Core came out, and I could sit down <laughs> and play it on a CRT monitor with an arcade stick. I want to have the real experience because I've never played it, so I, I want to make sure to like I get to play it the right way for the first time, so I could see what it's like. So I'm very excited. I might do that later with a, a, a couple of beers, <laughs> sitting down and trying. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, what what do you think your favorite game that, or I guess platform too? But what do you think your favorite game that you've worked on so far is? Think. Yes. Like I've been surprised by a few titles that I, I didn't know. Uh, said like, like I was very surprised with uh, Higamaru. You know, that was a an old game from Capcom that I didn't know. I just made it for completeness. It was very easy to do. Mm-hmm. So I just released it directly to the public. And I was surprised to see how much time I was spending playing it. And, and I saw that that in, in the Discord uh, channels, people were also playing it. So I thought that, oh, <laughs> you know, sometimes there are tools there that you don't know about. Yeah, I find when I'm, I, you know, these days I spend more time testing than I do playing. And I find that <laughs> if I'm testing a game and, you know, next thing you know, 
uh, 15, 20 minutes has gone by. Like I, I, I make a mental note, like, wow, I must really like this game. I only needed two minutes worth of footage and it's 15 <laughs> minutes later. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, exactly. I, I always try to do that, and I always go back and play my favorites. I remember playing 1943 when I was a kid on the oh. NES with one of those like flight joystick things. Um, yes. And uh, when, when the core came out, I was really excited to play the arcade version of that. Yeah, I had to play to the Amstrad CPC version, and I tell you, it's it's terrible. <laughs> really, <laughs> if you compare it to the arcade game, oh my god! Yeah, the NES version was okay. It wasn't a bad port, but it's not like the arcade. Everything, the graphics, the, the, the sound, the way it feels, it's, it's definitely arcade is much better. Yes, yes. It's funny because um, many people think the opposite about Contra. Contra the arcade game mm. certainly looks better, but a lot of people prefer the gameplay on the NES. Yeah. So it's really cool to yeah. have an accurate re- representation now to be able to play that. Yes, and the and the Amstrad CPC version of Contra is, is also better than the arcade. So oh, really? I think the arcade is the worst, but the worst version in this case. It's just that it is the original, so, so you want to have the original. Absolutely, yeah. But, yeah, um, and there is a funny. Uh, well, missing piece in the Contra puzzle, and it happens in emulation too. We don't we don't know why. That you know, when you go into this kind of three D levels, mm-hmm. and there are barrels coming to- towards you. So when you play the real board, you get these barrels coming in f- from the left, from the you know center, whatever. But you know they will kind of either. They will, each one will follow its way. So if it started on the left, it will go on on the left. But when you play the emulated version or the version in FPGA, the barrels will all shift to the right. Hmm. So see, it's very, very strange. And and we do know that, that the CPU is accessing registers inside the custom chip, which we don't, we don't know what they do at all. Um, uh, and there must be some information missing there because the CPU is deciding to to shift the barrels to to the right instead of keeping them in, in their lanes. And Fartech is is now working on reverse engineering that custom chip. Yeah, so, so I, I, really... I, uh, I was actually that was going to be my next question: What's the next step when you see something like that? Do you have to decap the top of the chip and then look at it under a microscope to see what it's uh, what it's doing and how it's made? Yes, that that's the the best thing. But an easier thing is that you that you just write a small piece of software and you execute it on on the real hardware and and try to get information that way. That 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 is faster. Hmm. But you it, it it is not as as accurate because you because you still don't will not know if there is any other thing missing. But the the problem I have with with die shots is that you know in in my day job I I see a lot of that because like us you know when we when we make I see you know new 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 chips we you know, we have to uh, draw the schematics then we have to you know draw the layout and I, I do a lot of layout and um I, I I don't do layout myself I I think I haven't done any layout for the last maybe seven or eight years. Mm. But I kind of have a like a respect for it that you know that it's going to be impossible because you know when when I design my schematics and I and the layout engineer does his layout and he shows it to me, I, it is my design and it is still 
requires effort to go and say, okay, this is my transistor, my resistor, my capacitor. And so even if you know everything, a layout is not that easy to understand. So that's why when I see these tie shots, I think, oh my God, I mean, this is going to take forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I have... I, I tried once, but I no, I think it's better if, if I leave other people to do it who, who have proven that, that they can do it and they do it right. And and I focus on, on writing course. Yeah, I mean that's always that's always the secret to a good formula. Everybody everybody does what they're good at, but everybody communicates. It's a, I mean it's the same thing with bands too, right? You don't need yes. to be a, the best drummer and the best guitarist. Pick one and work together. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so, do you work on any of the video amplifier chips and analog devices, analog video amplifiers? I worked in in a long time ago. There were new TV sets coming with HDMI connectors, and it was the first time that that was going to be uh, general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember there was this big problem with long HDMI cables because the signal just, uh, you know, degenerates very quickly and you, and, and you lose it. So I worked in an equalizer for, for that to regenerate the video signal. And I think that equalizer has been used in a lot of HDMI chips from analog after that. I don't know exactly, uh, you know, the part numbers. I, I, could, I could find out, I suppose. Yeah, I you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the because I think that Mister uses, I'm not sure it uses some chips from analog. I'm not sure if I think the HDMI one is is from analog. So so it could be it could have my my equalizer in there. That would be such a coincidence if the Mister's chip <laughs> used the chip that you had your some of your code on. That would be cool. <laughs> you know the the last analog devices chip I used. Um, we were trying to figure out a way um, to do an RGB to S video component and uh, in composite, but with the, some of the old timings of the old video games, getting it to composite mm. was really hard. It wouldn't work. The colors would be off. Whereas TV signals were fine, and some consoles worked, some didn't. The Sega Genesis specifically didn't. So it was pretty neat. We were trying to go through the data sheets and figure it out, and we just gave up because you know it wasn't the biggest product. It was mm. just kind of an experiment. But, but I I remember that. At the, at the time I, I was working on that uh, HDMI chip, um, uh, analog TV was was still a was still mainstream, and I remember the manager saying that that not only did we have to get the digital TV right, but it was very important to get analog TV at a higher quality than what was available before because that was kind of our selling point. Right? Like. Uh, like a lot of people can do digital chips, but not so many people can do analog chips. So, so we had to get the analog part, uh, at, you know, with with a lot of care and with with you know, with the top quality. Yeah, especially that. when flat panels started to come out, because even even the expensive ones at the beginning, um, you know, if you had a decent, you know, uh, 480i CRT you could probably notice the difference between a mediocre chip and a really good one. But the moment you yes. have a flat panel, that difference becomes really noticeable. And especially back then when you most of the signals out there were interlaced and then you're putting them on a flat panel, uh, trying to convert them to progressive. So any of that noise really gets <laughs> amplified. So yes. it's, uh, And in fact, that's why these RGB bypasses that a lot of us do on original consoles, you know, some people think it's ridiculous because they already output RGB, but bypassing it to 
modern chips that are higher quality with better filters on it, you actually can see a difference, especially if you're going through a 1080p scaler on a, you know, a 60 inch television or something. Yes. It's kind of funny too, because that would never have even been an issue in the nineties or the eighties. You could never tell the difference (laughs) on those TVs, but. No, no, you couldn't. That's funny. Well, now the next time we get stuck on a project with uh, an analog devices chip, I'll know who to bother. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually know know some of the people who worked on, on those video amplifiers, but I don't think they would remember anything, you know, <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's probably been, it, it has to have been at least 10 years till that uh, yes. was stopped being made because the last ones that were made are still fine. There's no reason to update the design. Like at that time, we... We were we were working in Ireland at that time, so so part of the video group was was there. Like usually, groups are you know are all over the place, but but yeah, this is, and then and then some of those designers came here to to Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think they haven't worked on video since since they came here. So in at your job, I mean, obviously you're working with people around the world, but um, do you predominantly speak English or Spanish? Well, in the office, we, we speak Spanish to each other, and we if, even by email. If if it is all among Spanish people, it is often written in Spanish. But then, yeah, phone calls it usually involve people from all over the place. So we work a lot with Ireland. That is a very big analog devices uh, center in, in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, depending on the project, it, it might be India, the Philippines, Sometimes we get people from the States too. I think in the current project, we only have one person from the United States. But it depends. Sometimes the, sometimes the project is more f- focused in, in the, the United States. But, but yeah, I suppose I normally work mostly with, with Ireland. Hmm. I'm always fascinated by people who could speak multiple languages so well. And, uh, you know, some people get offended when I ask them about it. I, I honestly don't know why. I always mean it as a compliment. But, uh, you know, I never I never learned a second language. I started to learn Mandarin Chinese when I was out in Taiwan oh. for work for a while. But I only was out there for, you know, I would go for two weeks at a time a couple times a year. So I got to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was able to order food, you know, find the bathroom, order my, you know, whatever beer I wanted. Oh, no, that's good. Basic. Very yeah. basic. Like I couldn't, you know, and almost everybody over there spoke pretty good English as well. So it was always a combination of, of the two but i would never yeah. like i if you drop me in the middle of china I, I don't know if i'd be able to make it out so uh but I'm, I'm always really jealous of friends that speak multiple languages and especially my friends that grew up um in a house that was bilingual so neither Angli- language they spoke they have an accent they don't have a uh, when they speak english they sound mm. like every other american that they grew up around and uh, like one of my friends his family was from cuba and when he speaks spanish he sounds exactly like his parents so I was, that was always yeah. pretty cool. Uh, every time I speak, I try to speak a different language. I sound like a dumb American trying to speak a different language. So it's uh, it was pretty cool. Did you just learn in school growing up, or was that? Um... Oh, but at the time, I, I was taught English. But and you, like I remember in secondary school, the English teacher was teaching us new words, and and he was just dictating him. He was just saying the words out loud. But we didn't know uh, we didn't know how to write them, how to spell them. So I can only imagine now that you know, looking back, that he was actually pronouncing them as though they were Spanish words. So it would have been the completely wrong pronunciation, but but we were writing them correctly. That's and, funny. 
I think when when I decided that I wanted to to apply for a job in in analog devices, I I actually started uh, watching uh, Friends, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that if if I had a script in front of mine, I was going to be able to understand it, but I couldn't understand what they say, what they said at all. The, like there was this misconnection between my writing skills and my oral skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's basically friends and, and living in Ireland what would fix that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say friends because each of the characters on that show are, are have completely different mannerisms, slightly different ways of talking. So that at <laughs> first it must have been frustrating, but after you got used to it, that must have actually been a really great way to learn because you got to got to see different ways that people spoke. Yes. It is actually frustrating because after so many years, like when you get used to somebody's accent, like like Joey's accent in friends, then you can always understand him. But now, if I start watching a new TV series, then at the beginning, do I, I may not understand them well because they might have some, you know, some peculiar accent. Um, um, that's very, no matter. very true. <laughs> yeah, that's. I remember um, when I had that job where I was traveling. I, I went all over, um, uh, and the the place that I had the hardest time understanding people's accents was uh, a part in the deep south of America where the accent was so thick. I had a harder time understanding than when I was in Taiwan listening to native uh, Mandarin speakers try to speak English. I, th- I actually had a much harder time uh, to this one section of the South trying to figure out what everybody was saying. And I felt bad because they were, they were speaking English, but it just it was such a yeah. thick accent. I kept having to say, I'm sorry, can you repeat yourself? I have no idea what you're saying. So. Yes, yes, no, no, no. Hmm. It was, like, I had once... Uh... A housemate from Scotland, and at that time we had—I had already been living in Ireland for three years, so I thought that I had decent English. As she started speaking, and you know, I couldn't understand a thing from her. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, when did you live in Ireland? I think it was from 2000 to 2004, so it's, it's a long time ago now. That's cool. I've—I. Uh, I've never been. I think I had a, a trip scheduled to stop in for a day, but I ended up, uh, because of whatever schedule, I ended up just going to England. But I, I always wanted to go. Mm-hmm. It always seemed like a fun place to visit. It has a, a peculiar smell. Uh, like you get out of the airport, and I don't know whether it is the, the grass or the soil, but you know that you are in Ireland. It. That's funny. You know, I found that with Taiwan because uh, even though I didn't grow up in New York City, I grew up going there because I lived very close. And in New York City, there's a lot of um, like fried foods, so you have that mm. you know that fried smell a lot when you go down to the street vendors and things like that. And in Taiwan, a lot of the food was was boiled in tea, so it had you oh. know it had a d- d- distinctive smell when you would go into some of the parts of the cities when they, you know they'd have the street vendors and stuff like that but it's funny you mentioned that you know some places do have a smell to them and it's it's, it's kind of neat if you've never experienced that before it's, it's a strange thing it is yeah that's really cool i know it was funny i never went anywhere as a kid my family i think we went on one vacation to florida to visit my grandparents and then i got this job in 2005 2004-ish um, and the second day there, they said, all right, get a passport. You're going to be, you know, you're going to Asia next month. You're going Whoa. this place. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> it is. It is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ev- 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 yeah. Eventually you, you can get, you know, get fed up of, 
business travels because it's just you know plain uh, you know office plain office plain office but you know if they if they give you like i actually met with uh, sorgelik you know sort yeah yeah uh, i actually met him in in taiwan because at the time we he, he lives there he's he's not uh, he's he's russian but he lives there um and at the time i was on a project with one of these uh, manufacturers in taiwan like I think half of that aisle is it's just uh, IC manufacturers. They have these big foundries all over the place. So I had to go to go there and and, and I wrote that on my Facebook um, and he contacted me and he said, "Are you here? Because I live here." And I thought, "No way!" I mean, I was expecting him to live in Russia, yeah, you know, in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> so he was there and, and we met and, and it was was very good and. And some months later, I had to go again, and, and we met again. And and he's he's quite a good host, you know. He was showing me around. That's really cool. Um, what part of Taiwan? He, well, I, he he was in Taipei, the capital, mm-hmm. but I didn't go there. Like my visit was some. It's called like Sunsu or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to get the pronunciation right, but something like Sunsu. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I I spent most of my time right in Taipei City, um, but I I got to travel around the city and just the outskirts. I got to go to the beach once, but like you said, with business travel, it's very often plane, office, office plane, and that's it. But I always I always found ways to have fun. I always found people that wanted to go out to the bar afterwards, see the city yeah. a little bit. So. I always made the best of it. I loved it. A lot of people get burned out from business travel, but I never did. I always, you know, I learned to sleep on a plane. I don't sleep that well anyway, so it's mm. I didn't get any better or worse of a sleep on a plane than I did at home. <laughs> it's <laughs> the same. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So, uh, what what do you have your your sights on next? What are the boards that you're excited to to look at to see if it's even possible to reverse engineer? Well, I have. I was going to do something in the middle before CPS2, but now that I'm looking at it, I think that maybe I should just jump straight to it because like the biggest thing to it was Qsound maybe. Now there is this big Sprite engine that has to go very fast, but probably that's that's all about it. Um, so maybe I will do CPS2 then. And, and then I have, I have to make an inventory because I have some boards that I have on loan, not too many on loan, I have, but I have some boards that, that were donated to me to work on them. And then I have some requests from, from directors too. And then there are games that I would like to do myself. So I need to make an inventory and, and make a kind of, of, a, of a roadmap, something that you know makes sense from... The, of the development point of view from a release schedule point of view because I, I cannot be just working three months without releasing anything. I think I would like to keep releasing things at least one, once or twice a month if, if possible. So, so I need to make things of all these things. One, one core that I am not supposed to work on but that I may work on is is the System 16 core. Oh, wow. From Sega. Mm-hmm. Because... I know that Mr. X started doing it, and I have told him that uh, that it was okay that that I was not going to touch it. But I think that his personal life got a bit complicated, um, so maybe I don't know if I. Uh, and there is this game. I, I would really like to see a Shinobi core. 
in Mister. Yeah. And I have one Shinobi board on loan for too long, maybe over a year. I also want to give it back to the owner. So so that is yeah, that's one core that that I have in the back of my mind. Um other titles like there is this this Nemesis 2 or Gradius 2 core that I I received a, a board also um and I think that one wouldn't be too hard. And then and then I have been asked about the, I don't know if you know it, the IGS polygame system from Taiwan actually. Yes. Yeah, I actually uh Smoke Monster told me to get one of those and when he you know, when <laughs> when he said that I was like, All right, I'm gonna listen, you know. So I picked that one up and I got um I got one beat 'em up game with it and I think you suggested a couple of shooters as well that I'll eventually get. But yeah, it's pretty cool. I never knew that existed until he taught me no. about it. No, I didn't know either. Um and then, and then when you check it out, it, it has it has good games. Yeah. And now, now there is this debate whether people are here for nostalgia or are here for the games. And I think it's kind of both. I think that there are some games that you know have a special meaning to you. But if you see a good game now, I think you can appreciate it. And and some patrons have told me that have have told me I didn't know this game and I, I have only played it because you made the core and now I like it. Yeah, it's, you know, what I've found in all the videos I've done, all the, the guides I've written, it's nostalgia is what brings a lot of people to retro gaming, but nostalgia doesn't get past the first level. So, you know, hooking everything up, putting your cartridge in, holding the controller, you know, hearing the title music, and then you start the first level, and if the game stinks, that's that's it. You're done. It's like, <laughs> all right, that was fun. I remember this. Goodbye. I'm out. But if the game's good... You know, then nostalgia goes out the window at that point. Now it's just you're you're into a, a really great game the same way you would any game, new, old, whatever. And I think it's the same exact way with cars. My favorite cars mm. growing up were made long before I was born. I had no nostalgia for them. I just <laughs> I saw one once and went, "Wow, that's cool. That that feels like me. I want to own that one." So it was, uh, you know, I think it's it's very similar. I guess music too. You know, it's you don't have to be uh, yes. gr- growing up with music to enjoy it. Yes, although although they know that there is a window f- for for these things, including music and food. Mm-hmm. So so what you were exposed to at at a certain age has a bigger impact, and actually after a certain age it has no impact. And you can see that with music that that people like the music when they were teenagers, but then when they are past their thirties, they are pretty much insensitive to to new music coming in. And if they are past their forties, then it, it it's all about old music. I, I've so noticed it, that, and I've always tried really, really hard to not be that person. And you know who who's the best example is Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Uh, he's mm. seventy years old, and every time I see an interview with him, he's talking about a brand new band that even I haven't heard of before. He <laughs> stayed with it, and I always kind of looked at that as like because I, I always liked Judas Priest. They weren't my favorite band, but I always looked at that as inspiration. Like, wow, th- this is the metal god, but he's still checking out new music all the time, even though he's a senior citizen. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh yeah, I always tried to to go out, you know, to go based on that and. Uh, you know, when I started playing bands, a lot of the newer music I enjoyed were the local bands that we played with. So, you know, original music and stuff like that. Um, but I still always tried to try to keep expanding my horizons. And I always try new foods. I always, you know, I, I always try to keep growing. I've, I'm always afraid that once that ends, like, what what's next? <laughs> so. Yes. Um, and the the funny thing with that is, is also that for, for, for your job, 
you also, you know, you have like this time when you are learning how to do your job and after that you know how to do it and you also become a bit uh, a bit insensitive to new ideas in your job because you you already know how to get around you already know how to solve problems you, you don't need to, other ways of solving problems so then you stop learning so much and the funny thing is that if you move to a completely different job even if you are not young anymore then that capability of learning new things just wakes up again so, so maybe I I kind of think about that for myself that maybe as an analog designer I like like I have already my book of tricks, but I don't have one as a digital designer, which is what I'm doing with FPGA. So, so for me it's more you know more about discovery, more about you know creating all these new workflows and and environments to to get production done in, in a timely manner. Yeah, that's a good point. For for me, whenever I need to start from scratch and learn something new, I always procrastinate and delay, and I just I find an excuse not to do it, and then eventually I go, "All right, let me just throw myself in and and learn it until I could do it good enough." And but you know, there's always that hesitation, and then I just jump in and do my best. <laughs> yeah. You know, you said something before about um, about releases, and it kind of reminded me of my own schedule because you were saying you don't want to go a long time without releasing something. You want to keep mm. it going. Um, you know, from from uh, the point of view of a fan of your work, you know, no one cares. Do it on your own schedule. You know, we we just want to see you do what you want. But as you know, as somebody who creates content, uh, even back when I was working at that job doing hardware design there were a couple of times where three or four weeks would go by and, you know, we'd have a weekly check-in meeting and my boss would say, all right, what'd you do? And I said, nothing. I got nothing done. <laughs> nothing's released. I feel like a failure. I feel like, but I mean, I'm working, you know, to, if I was traveling, it was 12 hours a day. If I was working in the office, it was eight hours a day. I'm doing stuff every day, but I, I felt, I felt like a failure unless I would get something done. And I still get that feeling with the videos and the articles. So even if I'm working on a very big video, that's a lot of production. Um, I always try to stop and put anything out just so I feel like I don't feel like I'm getting nowhere. I feel like, all right, I accomplished this, you know, and I'll go back and exactly. chisel away at the bigger goals. So I think you're doing the right thing. You know, if you want to have an easier project, just to have that feeling of completion, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing well. So. Exactly. Just you need that, and um, and it, it it's also a bit painful when when I release something and and I know that I haven't been able to test everything, um, and then and then someone comes immediately after and say, "Look, this is not working here," and, <laughs> and that is like five minutes after you make the release. <laughs> but but that's uh, even even if that happens, then it's good to get it out of your system and especially i i do releases on friday so even if i if i keep doing the search on on saturdays it kind of feels like the you know the the, the job is done and mm. and now i i can relax yeah it's funny i always have that that time period and it's it's different every time but if i release a video and then a couple of days go by and one of the comments says, Hey, I think you made a mistake. And you know, like five minutes in, I'll usually go, Oh, you're right. Thanks for letting me know. You know, here's why I made that mistake. Cool. But if I release the video and the first comment is you made a mistake, it's like, Oh, come on, watch the rest <laughs> of the video. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need, you need that positive feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's good that people understand too, that, that we, this is, 
this is not like a full team in, in a big company where you you know you have a lot of people doing design verification, which we, we would call we would call it. We, we don't have a lot of people doing that. Like um so yeah, so people are in general understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um but still like we have now with this big big problem with the HTRAM. Right. You know, that was actually one of the last things I wanted to make sure to ask before uh, before we ended, because I was following your work on that. And you were talking both about the speed differences between the RAM and a new memory controller that you were working on, I believe. Uh, would you mind yes. uh, explaining that? Because I was really curious about all of that. Yes. Well, I, I was I was a newcomer to to the SDRAM world when, when I started working on this, because as I said, I'm an analog designer, so I don't deal I know, like I know the details, you know, of how the bit cell works because that's kind of the analog domain. But then, how you make the controller? Then, then I, I know. So, I, so when I started working on cores, I needed to access that. So I started with kind of the bare minimum that I needed, um, and even to get that working was was a bit hard at the time. But for CPS one, that. Well, a bit before that, it started to to fell short. So I added cash, yeah, a little bit of cash. I started doing a lot of tricks in the core, a lot of you know smart moves to to make it work with a slow memory. But at some point, I, I just needed more RAM, more speed. Sorry, mm -hmm. um, and for CPS one, I had to rise it to ninety six megahertz, the clock speed. So it was twice the old clock speed, and I started having problems with the memory at that time and the point well the thing here is that i am a bit biased you know because because of my background in you know in analog devices and in texas instruments when i see the memory module and the socket where we we have to plug it in i think oh my god this is not this is not the best thing that that <laughs> you know, because that socket was not meant to to be used that way. Um, it's not very high frequency, but a hundred megs is you know it's already something to be careful when when you design boards. And I know that when we, I don't design boards at, at my at my job, but but there, there there is a team who has to design a board where my chip is going to go, and they are going to measure my chip with their board. So I have to attend the the design review for those PCBs. Um, and we say things from the point of view of the chip designer, but then there are also other PCB designers saying things from their point of view and saying, you know, that track is going to be too long and asking what's the parasitic capacitance here and there. So I'm, I'm so used to that formal environment that when I see these things, I, I may tend to think very quickly that, that the module is, is wrong. Um, and at this time, I also think that the module is wrong, you know, <laughs> that, that this is not the design that we need. But I, I really hope that, that I am the one wrong here. Um, I really hope that there is something wrong in my controller and there is something that can be done without having to, to ask people to, to rework their, their memory modules to resolder them or whatever is needed. Yeah, I hope I hope that is the case. Um, so if yeah. I'm uh, if I'm understanding all of this correctly, so the the biggest problem 
with Mister is also one of its biggest strengths in that it uses the DE10 Nano, which is cheaper than the main FPGA chip if you're buying them in, in sale. It is. So, um, but you you're then working within the confines of what the DE10 Nano can do. So while you're getting this very expensive, very fast chip, you also have to go about certain things a specific way, and it can be very limiting. I remember talking to Risha and to Ash Evans a couple times about, you know, hey, can we do this? Can we build this? And the answer is yes, but how could you make that work right in the DE10 Nano? You know, you don't want to be removing components from that thing at all. You know, you want to use it as a plug-and-play module. So um, the the memory controller that's or the memory chip that are in there now luckily they're relatively inexpensive and they're very easy to swap out so even if you're a non-technical person if you could use a screwdriver you could swap that out so even if even if the project evolves and a new memory chip is invented um it's you know it's not like it's going to stop people from using the previous cores it's not like you have to buy a whole new thing uh but you're right it's it's um you know it's interesting to see if the speed of these things uh can match the size as well. And I believe reading your post, it seems that the 64 megabyte and lower module can run at a much faster speed than the current 128 megabyte module, right? Yes, there is. That's, if you, if you try to access several parts of the SDRAM at the same time, you need to use more signals to do it. Um, and those signals were, were cut and, and sorted to other pins in in the 128 modules and then i heard that that was actually generalized to the other modules too so even if you have a lower sized module that has been built recently you are also losing direct access to those signals hmm. and when when discussing this with search he he said that that from his like like he has been running tests before and he decided that there was not much speed lost. And at the beginning, I was being a bit conservative about about not messing, uh, you know, how you access in parallel without these signals. And then after talking with him, I was I, I had a better simulation setup then, so it was very, I could verify very quickly if I was breaking something or not. So then I tried to push it harder, and I got more speed than I had originally. It is still slower than than if you could use those signals. I think if you can use those signals, I can get 66% efficiency, which is like two out of three clock cycles are being used to to get data. If I don't use these signals, if it is one of the newer modules, it, uh, it is only one out of two. So efficiency drops from 66 to 55%. But that is actually better than what I had originally, which was like, I think it was like 37 or so. So, um, and then what's going on with the memories now, if, if it is something electrical in the end, then even if I can pull some trick to space out signals in for CPS 1.5, because there is still a headroom there, I don't, I don't need so much bandwidth, memory bandwidth. So even if I do tricks there and I fix it this time from the FPGA point of view, this is just like you know, like kicking the ball forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is going to happen again because this, then CPS two is going to need more memory bandwidth because it has nine hundred sprites on a screen. So, 
at, at some point, if it is really an electrical problem, at some point we are going to have to stop and say, uh, look, we need to, to design the PCB better or to improve the way we are soldering the chips, maybe you know, maybe ask manufacturers to do it with machine equipment instead of doing manually. I, I don't know. Mm. We need to debug it. I, I have asked about information about you know the PCB parasitics that they do. Yeah, it's yeah, I don't know. And, and Serge has offered today to have a look at at my controller to see if he finds something there. And yeah, and as I said, I know that if I spare out the SDRAM access times, I it it may work for CPS 1.5. But yeah, but then we'll we'll have the problem for the next core. So so well, so maybe it's better if you said it may work now. for CPS 1.5. But I have a 128 megabyte module in mine, and it, it it does seem to work now. So is the reason that it's working now because of the cache that you've built in in order to do this? Or no 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 no. It I, I think. I think it should work for most people. Like I don't have the statistics, but I have, I have like nine different memory modules at home to run uh, tests, and it, it it only fails for two of them. Hmm. So, um, so I suppose it works for most people. But yeah, the the problem is that there are some people who who have who are not happy now. So so, you know, so, so we don't like that. Um, so if this does turn out to be a hardware problem, could it be solved just by a, a new memory module that has yet to be invented? Yes, it, it depends. It depends on what problem it is. If if it is, it could be it could be many things. Like like the it could be that the second module on on the board is creating noise even when you don't use it because it enters the self refresh state. That affects there. It could be uh, what is called symbol interference because, like, like it seems to happen at a very specific point. So, it seems to happen when some data is going through the through the box with with a history. Um, so then, if it is something like that, maybe we need a new a new PCB design with maybe wider spacing between the signals. Maybe we need uh, like as I said, if we were doing this, uh, if this had been done by an electronic engineer, I think it would have been quite different. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it can it cannot work otherwise because because we usually, especially in analog devices, we get things you know extremely correct, extremely. You know, yeah. with very, very high precision, taking a lot of care about details. Um, but I know that a lot of the time you don't need that. Right. And a lot of the time you can get away with much less. So that's why, you know, I have this biased opinion that, you know, it's going to be the module, but, but maybe I'm completely wrong. So, so let's see. That's cool. It's an interesting learning experience. And I, I've talked to a few people over the years about building a hardware platform for the Mister and trying to find different ways to get it. And um, one of the biggest concerns was, well, how do we know exactly what we need? So even if we talk to you, we talk to Sorg, we talk to everybody and say, all right, well, let's all decide on this one board. And, you know, well, I'll talk to a not-for-profit company to have them made so no one's making any money off of this. It's still 
there's still no exact understanding of what would be needed to, to cover us for the future. So it's good that it's good that there's these bumps in the road now, especially when you're talking about a, a $50 RAM module that you could very easily just yes. swap out as opposed to the full kit, all the extra accessories and all that. But I would like someday to see a, a piece of hardware that we could call Mr. or whatever the project name is. And one, one company did actually contact me and said, you know, Hey, how do you think about this? Like, we're going to make it, we're going to have it for next year. And then they mm-hmm. asked me to ask Mr. Engineers to work for them for free. I just deleted <laughs> deleted the email. I didn't even <laughs> like, oh, get out of here. No, <laughs> absolutely not. So, um, you know, it would be different if it was a not-for-profit company that says any profit we make is just going to go back into making new products and we're going to sell them yes. at cost. That would be different. I would actually think that a lot of the Mr. Um, contributors would be happy to help because it's not one person getting rich off of other people's work. It's just allowing a hardware platform for the community to have. But not, that was not the case. This was a big company that just wanted to make money off of free work from other people. So I just yeah. get out of here. Forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we do we do put out a lot of 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 source code, you know, and and this source code, you know, some some companies could could make products out of them, and yeah, yeah, and and that's that's fair because that's the license. But we we do not want that to happen very quickly because yeah. because then it it really feels like like you know like they have used you. But, you know, if it happens in like five, ten years time, then yeah, yeah then I suppose I'll, I'll be happy about well, it. Well, if they did it, if they did it right, if they submitted all of their changes back to the project like you're supposed to, and if they made a platform that's very easy to use, that that works properly, and then they sold and sold that for a fair price. I mean, that's anybody that's ever manufactured and sold something, anything knows how much work is involved in that and how hard it could be sometimes. So if if a company actually stepped up to the plate, did all the hard work themselves, resubmitted any code changes they made, that would actually that wouldn't be a bad thing. I imagine some developers yeah, might, might be upset, but it's it's only when people come in and try to get everything for free, not give anything back, and not even care about the original point of all of this stuff. That's that kind of gets yes. on my nerves, you know. Yes, exactly. I mean, I I hate to call them out because this this has been beaten to death, but that's kind of what Hyperkin did uh, all those years ago when they stole the emulation code for the Retron Five. I mean, that was that was against every rule that the community had set for how to work with that stuff, and it was just it was really discouraging to see it approached that way when they could have done the opposite. They could have made the Retron Five a software emulation open platform for people to use and people would have loved yes. it. They probably would have sold more because your average consumer would only care about, can I plug my carts in and use them? All right, cool, I'll buy it. But developers could then say, oh, cool, I could write my software to make and have a, an inexpensive platform to work on it. But So I, uh, I definitely took the stance of never wanting to work with a company that would do it that way. You know, I don't Mm. generally speaking, I I stay away from thieves and liars. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Whether it's a company or a person, same thing. doesn't matter to me. (laughs) So I wanted to ask, I saw a video of you a while back, um, playing guitar. So it was the flamenco style guitar, right? It is. That is very hard to play, especially if you're like me and you're used to playing with a pick and you know just a regular electric guitar. How did you get started with that? Yeah, well, think I, I grew up in in Andalusia, in the south of Spain, oh. where where flamenco is is very popular, mm-hmm. and and I, I and there was a guitar at home, you know, and, and my father my father said that you know that it, it is important to play guitars and. 
he, he didn't mention the chicks, you know, but, <laughs> but he, he should have. <laughs> yes. Um, but I really, I really started playing when, when I went to live to Ireland. It was, you know, it was also kind of, of a way of, you know, keeping, keeping your roots, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I know I, I have never tried playing an electric guitar and I have heard that for the electric guitar, it is difficult to, to control the sound to be, like, like for the, an acoustic guitar, it is difficult to get the sound out to, you know, to get the volume. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the electric, you have to be careful because it just, you know, just sounds. Yeah. I mean, and, and the hardware you use completely changes everything. It's uh it's very, it, it gets complicated. Uh, that's why I'm very lucky that for recording now, um, you could just plug into, I don't know if anybody would be able to see it, but I got one of the best interfaces I've ever used. Now it's probably not on camera, but it's, uh, the, <laughs> you get a good interface. I have the Motu and you're able to record directly into this. Just make sure. Uh, and you don't even really need to worry about clipping anymore because if you record in a, a higher bit rate, you could all, even lower the waveforms. And then mm. after the recording's done, then you could either uh, output it to an amp or you could use software to do it. But basically, for the past you know, over five years now, you could just concentrate on the performance and get a really mm. good performance and then worry about the sounds later. Do it however you want it. Do it easy. Do it the right way. Whatever. But So that's very mm. lucky. Whereas with acoustic, if you're recording that, however you mic that acoustic guitar, that's it. That's all, that's all you get. You can't really do too yeah. much. So as far as yes. recording goes, it's much harder to record with an acoustic from that point of view. It is. It is. And I have, I have, I don't know how they call it in English, whether they call it a peak. You know, I have a, a connection, a mic connection in one of my guitars, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't sound like the guitar at all. It's, it completely changes the, 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 the tone of it. It, it. it sounds like a different instrument. So, so you need a, a real microphone. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, pickups are good uh, if you're playing live. Then you just got to get a decent amp. But uh, for, I mean, I'm talking for acoustic, of course. But miking the guitar is always the the better way to do it, and it's it's challenging. It is. Yeah. It is. Yes. Yeah. And one one thing I like about about playing the guitar is is that it connects me to people who are very different from the people I usually deal with. Mm-hmm. Like in, you can imagine that in my office, everyone has a very similar background. Like everyone went to either, uh, you know, to the physics school or engineering school, um, you know, studied the same things, maybe went to work to the same places. It's, so it, so we are all very similar in the way we think about other stuff too. Whereas when when you get to when you go to play music with other people, then you know, it just opens up a lot. And I get people with very different life experiences and that seem very different that, yeah, sometimes they actually feel like coming from another world. And I suppose that it might be the same for them, you know, that they think, why, why is this guy behaving like this? And so, so that's one thing I really like about what playing the guitar with, with more people. Yeah, I found that with both music and with video games, especially with the retro stuff, um, you could have uh, similarities and connections and age doesn't matter, where you grew up doesn't matter. 
other things in your life doesn't matter. You could disagree about everything else, but if you have two friends that are playing music together or playing video games together that both like the song and the game, it, it's very cool. It makes I always use the term. I know it's a little cheesy, but I always like to say it does make the world feel like a smaller place, and uh, I, I always enjoyed that. You know, I love the fact that I get to talk to people from all around the world about this stuff, and it doesn't matter what language you're speaking. You know, music is the same to, to everybody, and these electronics are the same. It's all you know. Yes. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a common thing yes it's you know it, it's true that that sometimes you know with video games or music you don't have the local variety and, and then and then that may feel like it is just like like you are losing something but you are gaining something which is great that is that you can connect very quickly with someone you know from the other side of the world because you both played mario or 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 even or, or you both watch friends yeah <laughs> you know? and and yeah and now, and now you yeah you have you can say these things what was what that like you know it was we were on a break you know so, so you can say that kind of thing and and you know and it will it will resonate in other people's minds too yeah that's pretty neat it's it's fun that it's funny that you have both of those things in your life now you have that that connects you all over the world that but that still roots you back in you know where you grew up with the uh, the music and your day to day job it's it's fun how, I always appreciate how <laughs> stuff like that works I also liked how you said uh, bringing guitar to Ireland made you feel like you were bringing a piece of home with you I didn't realize it but I, I there was a couple times that I had I'd been on these long trips to Asia where I ended up bringing my acoustic guitar to play mm. and I just did it to fill the time when I knew I was going to have you know a, some downtime between projects out there but I, I, in hindsight it was kind of bringing a piece of me with me around it yes. it was also pretty funny <laughs> sitting on the floor at uh, the airport in China cuz they just you know they saw an american with a guitar and just assumed <laughs> that i was a professional musician and here i am playing some in flame songs on an acoustic guitar and people are going by listening like that's pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to do this this was a really fun conversation uh really interesting I, we definitely got to do it again at some point in the future if you don't mind absolutely yeah it's, it's my pleasure i i hope it's been interesting for for the audience yeah i think it will be um so uh you're active on twitter you're also uh you have your patreon um are there any other social media sites that people should look for you on or forums or anything like that not much actually not much well i it, it is the discord that is linked to my patreon but but the, the main channel is is open so it's public to anyone um and that's it. I have a Facebook and an Instagram accounts, but I don't I don't really use them much. It, it's on Twitter where I, I post most of the stuff. Yeah, same here, actually. Okay, I'll make sure to have links to all of that in the description. Um, and, uh, of course, um, anybody that uses the standard updaters and uh, your updater can get your course. Uh, and then you just have to find the ROMs wherever people normally find ROMs. So. Yes, cool. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll, we'll all talk to you again soon. Thank you.